Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a podcast that's like spark notes for mystery and thriller books, if spark notes were read by your favorite true crime podcasters. Now you can meet your Goodreads goals without ever opening a book. And if you couldn't figure it out from the intro, this podcast isn't spoiler-free. So listen at your own risk. Have you ever wondered what happens to a town when it finds out that it has unknowingly been housing a serial killer? Someone people waved to at the grocery store? Someone people gave the benefit of the doubt when they snapped at a cashier or looked a little too long at an unattended child at the playground? Because they were one of us? And we all know people like us have bad days. Or what about the businesses that employed them? The co-workers who laughed at their jokes? The employers who signed their checks and gave them good reviews because they were so dedicated, so meticulous, so detail-oriented? Or the families that have now been torn apart, guilty by association? The children who have to grow up balancing the love they have for the parent they knew with the terror they have of the person that parent has been revealed to be. These are the collateral damage victims of serial killers. While they are spared the trauma of the killer's intended victims, they suffer a different kind of crime, one that's slow-burning rather than violent, but they can still end or alter lives. We see some of this in fiction, The show's prodigal son and Dexter Newblood focus on the aftermath of a serial killer's crimes on his children. Stephen King's A Good Marriage and Riley Sager's The House Across the Lake look at what happens when a woman discovers her husband is so far from the man she thought he was, it has terrifying consequences. But Vera Crowder isn't a fictional character. She is a very real girl who, at age 13, watched her father get arrested for and confess to the murders of multiple men, one of whom was her best friend's father. And 13-year-old Vera Crowder loved her father. He was the parent who got her, the one who always ran into her room when she had a nightmare even when she was too old to need a parent to hold her hand through a nightmare's aftermath. He was the parent who treated her as an equal, a human worthy of his time. He listened when she talked. He accepted her for who she was. It was Vera's mother who was cruel, who yelled constantly at both Vera and her father, who treated Vera like an obligation she never wanted and a child who was a constant disappointment. So you can only imagine the kind of adolescence Vera had after her father was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. This man Vera had loved and admired, who she'd seen in the best parts of herself, was, in the court of public opinion, objectively and unforgivably evil. As soon as she's able, Vera leaves home, So when her mother, Daphne, calls her back home because she's dying, it is the last place Vera wants to go back to. But when she does, she is forced to confront, as an adult, 
her father's crimes. And while many true crime authors have mined Francis Crowder's life for content, most notably Hammett Duval, who built his career on a tell-all true crime book on Francis Crowder's murders. This is the first time we have Vera's perspective on what it was to grow up as the daughter of a serial killer, and who that man was as a father. I'm Risa P., and this is the story of Francis Crowder and the Crowder House Murders. When Francis and Daphne Crowder got married, Francis had an idea of what the rest of their lives were going to look like. Daphne was going to be devoted to their children, and Francis was going to be devoted to his wife. And because they were planning to build something together, Francis decided to build something for them to do that in. Crowder House started as a plot of land in the town of Marion, New York. Francis built it from the ground up with his own hands, and his wife designed it. Daphne didn't believe main floors needed hallways, so Francis built the lower floor of their house without any. Each room bled into the next by a series of wide archways, exactly what his wife wanted. The kitchen was large, but Francis wasn't much of a cook. So while he built it with the best of intentions, it wasn't the useful, heart-of-the-home kind of kitchen you'd see on HGTV. The countertops were narrow and the cabinets were high and deep. Not exactly useful if you weren't tall enough to reach all the way to the back. There was a powder room and a small office under the stairs that Francis planned to use for himself. Although it would later become Vera's childhood bedroom. Upstairs, there were hallways, because Daphne was a firm believer that everyone needed their privacy for personal things. The three doors to each of the upstairs rooms set apart from each other, like even the doors needed their space away from each other. But while those two levels of the house were mostly for Daphne, Francis made sure to keep space for himself as well. The basement was all Francis's with a lock on the door to ensure everyone else stayed out. He built himself a private workshop in the basement, and built it with all the care and precision he'd used in creating the rest of the house. He cleared a workspace in the center of the room and installed sterile bright lighting. He built a workbench against the wall and filled it with tools, all stowed neatly away and perfectly organized. The floors of the basement are poured cement, polished to a high shine and smooth to the touch. There's a large wooden X, taller than Francis Crowder himself, who is considerably tall. There are four anchors sunk deep into the cement floor, the kind that would be impossible to ever pull up unless you had the help of some serious construction equipment and didn't mind doing irreparable damage to the floor. There are pipes in the ceiling, hanging six inches out from the ceiling and making a perfect square around the floor of Francis's office. 
Francis's office has a hole at one side of the floor that looks down over this basement. The place where Francis would conduct his real work. But right now, Crowder House is still in progress, and everything here is still unused and untouched. It will be several decades later when this space is taken over by another kind of work. When police would storm the basement and take the tools away as evidence, leaving behind cigarette butts and shoe prints. And not long after that, the true crime journalists and enthusiasts would come through and preserve the rest of it under plexiglass, from the worktop in the basement to the carpet in Francis's upstairs office. And what they weren't preserving, they were taking, digging out the anchors and digging out chunks of plaster in the name of research, in the name of inspiration. Daphne didn't have much of a choice but to let them in, to let groups of tourists walk through her kitchen and wonder what the monster ate when he had breakfast. There weren't many places in Marion, New York, that wanted Daphne Crowder to work there. Not many people who had much kindness left for the wife of a serial killer. Vera ran away, but Daphne refused to budge. So she made her living selling tragedy, letting people take the house apart piece by piece while she lived in a constant reminder of her husband and what he did. But Francis Crowder may have been able to continue his work for years longer if it hadn't been for his daughter Vera, the true love of his life. The summer Vera turned 11, her mother made her and her father swap rooms. She told Francis to move his office upstairs and for Vera to move her bedroom into his office. Vera kept her window open at night, and the noise was driving Daphne crazy. She didn't want to hear it. She wanted her daughter exiled to the main floor of the house. And that was when the house started talking to Vera. Vera Crowder describes those first few nights as nightmarish, waking up to squelching sounds and the feeling that there was something evil under her bed, something that was going to get her. But every time she screamed, her dad would be right there, checking under the bed and assuring her it was all right. And the house never made a noise after her dad came in. As a child, Vera attributed this to the magic of fathers. But as an adult, revisiting her childhood bedroom and knowing what was in the basement just feet below where she slept, Vera had to confront a very different reality. Rather than a father who lovingly chased away the monsters every night she heard them bubbling up from the floor, Vera had to acknowledge that her father must have known the pipes from the basement and the hole he'd strategically drilled into the floor of what should have been his office were allowing the work he did, the crimes he committed, in the basement to seep through the floorboards of his daughter's room while she was sleeping. And he only stopped when he heard her scream and knew she had woken up. Rather than the hero jumping out of bed and rushing to his daughter's side, Francis Crowder was the cause of these nightmares. And what kind of man would knowingly let his daughter sleep night after night in that room while he continued what he considered to be his true work? And what effect did that repeated exposure have on his daughter?
Are you planning a trip this spring break to escape from the drudgery that is your everyday life of work, chores, groceries, and deciding what to make for dinner? Maybe you've decided to book yourself a romantic couple's weekend at a lakeside resort on the grounds of a historic manor house. Perhaps you'll be able to make friends with all the other couples, each seemingly perfect until the cover of a densely forested nature hike or a private cabin window left open unintentionally causes you to realize that everyone around you is harboring a dark secret that has their romantic and familial relationships hanging by a thread. And maybe this stresses you out on your stress-free vacation because you, too, have a dark secret that you were hoping to leave behind when you booked this vacation where all the meals are planned for you in a private restaurant where the hostess will take over for your decision fatigue by making sure you sit in the same spot every night of your seven-day package holiday? Well, fret no more. Perfectly Protected has an upgrade for that. Take your perfectly protected home security system and hit the road with 3G-enabled wireless window and door sensors, as well as portable cameras whose feeds you can stream from your phone. Whether you're lounging at the pool or hiking through a forest or someone claimed to have found human remains, even though the estate manager has assured all the guests they were just the bones of a fox. A five-foot-something fox with a very human-looking skull. Perfectly protected, make sure all video feeds are saved to your phone. And because we put your safety ahead of everything else, we've also given you the option to add your own timestamps just in case you need an alibi for a crime you definitely didn't commit, but can't give your real alibi because you were off doing something related to that dark secret you can't let anyone else know about. Perfectly protected. We know you didn't do it. Vera is 11 and a quarter years old when the first police officer comes to the house. They are looking for a man named Lawrence Ademowitz, who worked with Vera's father at Allen & Sons Hardware Store. Francis Crowder worked cutting lumber. Lawrence Ademowitz ran the register, so they weren't working together in close quarters every day, but it was impossible that the two men wouldn't have known each other. At the bare minimum, they'd exchange hellos and basic pleasantries in the break room over lunch. But the police don't care about how close Francis and Lawrence might have been. They're looking for leads, any leads, that might tell them where Lawrence might be. Lawrence has been missing for several days, and while it's not unheard of for a young man with, according to town gossip, several girlfriends hanging around to cut bait and run, the police have some suspicions about the nature of his disappearance. But Francis Crowder wouldn't know anything about that, because Francis Crowder is a family man with a beautiful wife and a young daughter living in a house he built with his own hands. Too old and boring for a man like Lawrence Ademowitz to take any interest in as a friend. And the police, this time at least, take Francis at his word. They enjoy a drink in the Crowder House kitchen while they ask some basic questions, but they do not search the house or ask to see the basement. Why would they? 
Lawrence Ademowitz is never found. Vera is 12 years old when she gets her first kiss. It's from her best friend, Brandon, and it is not a pleasant experience. The kiss itself is pleasant, but it's followed immediately by Brandon telling Vera he doesn't like like her, and then asking if he can kiss her again. Vera refuses and gets on her bike to ride away, but just as she's building up speed, Brandon catches up to her and kicks her off her bike. Vera goes home covered in bruises and blood, and when she tells the story to her mother, she makes Vera promise to never tell her father the real story of what happened. And Vera, pleased to finally have a secret, a connection with her mother, goes along with her request and makes up a story about falling without Brandon in it at all. In fact, Vera is able to keep that secret for six months. And if she'd been able to keep it longer, Francis Croder may never have been caught. Vera is 12 and a half when she goes on a fishing trip with her father, just the two of them. It is quiet and calm on the lake, and Francis has made them fishing poles out of long sticks. Vera's bleeding because she jabbed herself with the fishing hook, but she's with her father, and even after an hour when she's muddy and cold and can barely feel the tips of her fingers, she's still happy to be where she is. And then she finally catches a fish, and she's giddy and makes a joke about how it'd be better to kiss the fish than Brandon. And from there, the whole story, the true story, spills out. She tells her dad how Brandon convinced her to kiss him, how she said no the second time, how he pushed her off her bike and then yelled, fuck you, at her while she laid on the pavement, bleeding, and with the wind knocked out of her, unable to yell anything back. And Francis Crowder hurts for his daughter. And that's when he opens up to her. Francis Crowder tells Vera that men are demons, that some of them are filled with a foulness. He's very specific about this foulness being a physical thing, something that could, with time and precision, be removed. He says it is a kind of grease that makes men evil, going on to say that it is a dark, sticky, rancid oil and it's in men's bones and in their bellies, and it corrupts. And while he doesn't give Vera any details about what he does in the basement, while he doesn't come out and confess, he does tell Vera that he has a system to save other men, to keep them from turning into monsters. He tells Vera that he is the one who can save men before they go bad. Vera is 12 and three quarters years old when she finally gets up the courage to go into the basement. She waits until 2.30 in the morning after she's heard her father shuffle upstairs to bed, and then she sneaks down through the forbidden basement door. She borrows a flashlight from the kitchen and then heads down the stairs, still in her pajamas. She makes it all the way to the back of the basement before she sees it a shape crumpled in the center of four anchor points, chained to the ground. 
The man tells her his name is Arnold, and he begs Vera to save him. He knows where the keys are kept, and he promises if Vera lets him out, he will make sure she doesn't get in trouble. His eyes are brown, but the white parts are shot through with red, and the floor is slick with blood. Vera knows the man has been in the basement for 13 days, because now she knows exactly what the sounds are she's been hearing from beneath her bed late at night. And now that she knows, she is no longer afraid. Vera goes back upstairs and goes to bed. She even tells herself she feels proud that she conquered her fear, that she'd seen the monster and put herself back to bed. The logic of a child who still can't quite comprehend the real context of what is going on in her house. In the morning, Vera swears that the back of her hand was covered with thick black oil, and she washed it off in the bathroom sink, scrubbing it until there was no trace of it left. Vera is still 12 and three quarters when she first sees her father take someone. It is late at night and Vera is supposed to be asleep, but she's looking through her bedroom window anyway. She sees her father talking to a man and everything looks normal. But then her father hooks his elbow around the man's neck and eventually the man's legs go limp and her father drags the other man toward the house. Vera knows what to do now and she is not afraid. She crawls under her bed to watch through the hole in the floor. She wants to check and see if the black oil, the thing that makes men monsters, will pour out of this next man. But then the next day, Brandon comes over for the first time in weeks and asks Vera if she wants to ride bikes like old times. Vera knows she should say no, but she says yes anyway. And that's when Brandon tells her that his dad is missing. And Vera knows. She knows exactly who the man in her basement is now. And she knows why her father chose to take him. It's because of Brandon. The way Brandon knocked her to the ground and yelled just because she wouldn't kiss him again. The way he said he didn't actually like her, but still wanted something from her. A boy like that must be raised by a man filled with the dark, rancid oil her father spent all his nights trying to clean out. Vera is 13 when everything goes wrong. Vera is angry all the time and uncomfortable in her body, and Brandon has always been her only friend. But even before his father went missing, he'd been changing. He doesn't want to ride bikes anymore, doesn't seem to want anything to do with Vera. Vera is sad and lonely, and her father's basement is empty. So she decides to invite Brandon over, promising to show him the forbidden basement, a place they'd both been fascinated with as children because they were never allowed to go anywhere near it. And Brandon agrees. But things don't go the way Vera expects. Brandon is smarter than Vera gave him credit for. The childish glee they share at sneaking in late at night to a place they aren't supposed to be vanishes immediately when Brandon realizes what the basement is. He isn't fooled just because the basement is empty. He sees the anchors in the floor, the big X with its metal brackets, the tools along the wall, the stains on the floor. 
and he knows. But worse than that, Vera can see that there will never be a way for them to be friends, real friends, again, after he has seen this. And that is the opposite of what Vera wants. Brandon runs, and Vera is convinced he runs because of the black oil starting to take root inside him. He is only doing this, she tells herself, because he is turning into a monster like all those men her father has taken. And Vera is still his friend. Vera believes she needs to help him. So she grabs his ankles and pulls him down, and she starts the way her father always starts, in the same place, with a knife. But what comes out of Brandon isn't black and slick and inhuman. It's just blood. More blood than Vera expected. And that's when Vera realizes something is wrong, that this will not help Brandon. This will kill him. She runs upstairs to find her dad, ignoring how much trouble she's sure she will get into. Her father is quick, and he doesn't yell. He simply bundles Brandon up and says he needs to go to the hospital and that he will make sure everything is okay. Vera believes him, but her mother knows the truth. If Francis Crowder goes to the hospital with a boy who has seen his basement, Francis Crowder will never come home again. But he takes Brandon to the hospital anyway, because Francis Crowder loves his daughter. Francis Crowder confesses to the police at the hospital, and he pleads guilty so there will be no trial, no chance for the courts or the cops, or even Brandon, to drag his daughter into a mess that wouldn't exist if he hadn't been who he was. He is sentenced to life in prison and eventually dies there, leaving his daughter alone in the world with a mother who has never liked her much, and now likes her even less because she is the reason her husband has had to go to prison. At least that's the way things have played out in Daphne's mind. That it is Vera's fault Francis Crowder is in prison, and not Francis's fault for the things he did. After Francis's arrest and conviction, Daphne does whatever it takes to make ends meet, even if that means selling off pieces of her family home, or opening it up to the prying eyes of true-crime tourists and artists who can only be inspired by the dual muses of trauma and evil. Vera leaves home as quickly as she can and tries to shove her past down deep enough that she never has to confront it. But she comes back when Daphne is dying out of familial obligation. The small shed in the backyard has been converted to an artist's garret that Daphne has been renting out to earn extra money, and it is now occupied by the artist James Duval, son of Hammett Duval the author who wrote the most well-known true crime book about Francis Crowder and his murders. James has not made himself popular in Marion, New York. He is not well-liked. He oozes fake charm and uses people to get information. He is taking literal chunks out of the walls of Crowder House to use in his art and has somehow managed to get Daphne to agree to leave him Crowder House in his, her will. And he has plans of turning the whole place into a true crime destination. And around this point in the story is where Vera's telling trails off. 
Her story of being the daughter of a serial killer and the way that has shaped her life. The way the people in her life have either been disgusted by her or wanted to use her to get close to her so they can get closer to the dark things she's been forced to live with. So what happened to Vera Crowder after her mother's death remains a mystery. But James Duvall? Shortly after Vera Crowder came back to Crowder House, he disappeared. It's possible, and most likely, that he did not, in fact, inherit the house from Daphne like he claimed he would, and that Vera, the true heir of Crowder House, kicked him and his exploitive art off her property as quickly as she could. But if that were the case, you'd think he'd have surfaced somewhere, coming up alongside some other tragedy to use to make a name for himself. But as of this podcast, that hasn't happened. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. If you want to know exactly what's lurking in the Crowder House, you'll have to check out Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey from your local library or indie bookstore. This book looks at guilt and grief, trauma and its commercialization in the true crime space, as well as some supernatural elements. I hope you enjoy it. And whether you did or didn't, Come talk about this week's book in the Reader I Murdered Him podcast book club on Goodreads and find out what I'll be talking about next week by subscribing to the stay-at-home creative newsletter on Substack. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really, really like it, go annoy all your friends about it in real life until they subscribe too. If you have any news, stories, or feedback you'd like to share, you can email me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Salvis Mr. Lee.